Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Here in chapter 5 of the book of Ecclesiastes, the tone of this book takes a different turn. Up to this point, the wise man has been expressing the things that he has experimented with and has found to fail him and leave him wanting. But in chapter 5, he begins with more of a tone of the preacher, as he calls himself a little bit later in the book. He begins to put forward some truths for life which are worth our consideration. And here in this first section, which we'll look at tonight in verses 1 through 7, the wise man deals with the important subject of worship. Now, the house of God, which he refers to in this passage, would be for him the temple in Jerusalem. But of course, you and I don't go to the house of God in Jerusalem And we're not required to be in attendance for the sacrifices there. And indeed, that temple no longer exists. For us in the New Testament, who are in Christ, the house of God is the New Testament church. And it's God's purpose and plan for all of us to be a part of the house of God. In fact, God created us to be worshipers. But sadly, there's much vanity that goes along with worship. Therefore, you and I need to be careful about our worship before God. Do you know tonight it's possible to worship God in the right place and have the right practice and still be vain in our worship? And so in these seven verses, the wise man gives us some warnings about worship. He says in verse 1, "...keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God." And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words." When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error, Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers' vanities. But fear thou God. Some good counsel for us as worshipers of God. And particularly as we think about coming to the house of God, there are some things that he addresses in this passage which are all too common, even in good Bible-believing, Bible-practicing churches where the Word of God is proclaimed, it is possible for us to have a kind of worship that is actually offensive to God rather than acceptable to God. You'll note in this passage that he gives us several good commandments or reminders that we should consider in our worship. First of all, he tells us in verse number one that we ought to keep our foot when we go into the house of God. In other words, watch your step in worship. Be careful what you do. 
Now, the implication in verse 1 is that God expects us to go to the house of God. He says it in such a way that it's assumed we will be attending the house of God. Sadly, there's many people who don't darken the door of a church, who have decided that for them, church attendance is not necessary, that they don't need to be uh, with the rest of the assembly. And yet, here in this passage, it's clear that there should be an effort made to go to the house of God, but he's reminding us that when we go to the house of God, we ought to be careful where we step. You know, it's possible for us to make many missteps in our worship, and the reason is because Satan loves to deceive, distract, and detour. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to be distracted when the preaching of the Word of God is going on? It's so easy to be drawn away. Uh, it's easy to, for your mind to go off on a tangent and start thinking about something totally different than what God is trying to do in the service. It's easy for us to become detoured from the will of God. We need to be careful about the steps that we take when we come to the house of God. Notice some of the things that can happen to us. People sometimes end up in tangent doctrines that draw them away from a true commitment to the Lord's church. They get caught up in things that they're hearing or studying. A lot of these things are being expounded on the internet and they get a hold of something that they think is really, really important and it becomes their new thing, so much so that they decide, I need to separate from the church. I need to go a different direction. And usually they end up, because they can't find anybody that believes quite like they do, with their own little group, usually just them and their family, and they say, everybody else is wrong. But what did they do? Well, a lot of times they bought into a system of belief that ended up separating them from the Lord's church. They weren't watching their steps. All the while that they think that they're defenders of sound doctrine, they're actually being pulled away into error. A second way that people make a misstep in worship is when they come to the house of, of God and they worship without passion or true sincerity. This could happen to any of us, and I would go so far as to say that it's happened to all of us. Times when we've come to the house of God, we're here to worship the Lord, we're, we're here to put our attention upon Him, to focus upon His, His person, to hear from His Word, and instead we're just going through the motions. How often has it been that we've finished singing a song about the character and the name of God and we put our hymnal away or the screen goes off and we sit down and we don't even remember what it was that we were singing. We were singing the words mindlessly without even contemplating them. Or we sit through a whole message and, and God has been working in some people's lives and we leave and somebody says, what did pastor preach about today? And we go, uh, it was from the Bible. That's my best guess. Now listen, I won't be offended if that happens to you. It's happened to me. To be honest with you, there have been times when people have asked me in the middle of the week, what did you preach on on Sunday? Uh, I don't, uh, I'm already working on Wednesday. I don't know. I can't remember. Oh, it's so easy for us to make a misstep and just go through the motions of worship, but not actually have our heart engaged. Jesus said that we ought to worship God in spirit and in truth. 
And when we don't worship Him with all of our heart and according to the truth, we are making a misstep. There's a third misstep that people make. We need to watch our feet. And it's this idea of creating a divide between what you do at church and what you do in the rest of your life. Living one way at church and another in the workaday world amounts to hypocrisy. And it's sin against God. When we come to church and we act one way, but then we don't carry that same, uh, that, that same focus or that same idea of the God that we serve into our job and into the marketplace, it belies the fact that what we're doing in church is deceitful. And this is a misstep. It is a misstep that could happen to any of us if we're not careful. He warns us in this verse that we should be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. Now, we'll come back to that idea of hearing in just a moment, but I want you to consider that giving the sacrifice of fools is a misstep in worship. What is the sacrifice of fools? What is it that he's referring to? Well, I think there's several things that are wrapped up in this. I, I think one of the things that is a sacrifice of fools is being more concerned about what you get than what you give. When you come to the house of God with the idea, I'm here to get something uh, for myself, whether that is uh, socializing or feeling good or some kind of a program or something like that, and you come to get, but you forget that worship involves you giving. I think you give the sacrifice of fools when you're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. You're more concerned about pleasing others than you are about pleasing the Lord Himself. That, that means that you're more focused in your worship on what is everybody else doing and what is everybody else thinking and what is everybody else responding instead of what does the Lord want in my life. I think a third mistake that is the sacrifice of fools, I've already alluded to it, is focusing on the social more than the spiritual. And this can happen, especially in a larger church where we have many relationships. It can become about, well, who am I going to see? Who am I going to talk to? Where are my friends? I wonder what they're up to or coming into the house of God and talking about business and, and the, the concerns that are on our mind instead of coming here to worship the Lord, instead of coming to meet with Him and to minister to one another. It's a real danger and it's a misstep in our worship. I think a sacrifice of fools is hoping that somehow your gift will make up for the obvious wickedness in the rest of your life. We make deals with God. Things like, I'm, I'm sure, God, you'll overlook what I've been doing the rest of the week. I mean, I'm here and I gave a good offering. That's the sacrifice of fools. Do you think that God is somehow overwhelmed by what you give or that he needs what you give in such a way that he's going to say, well, I'll just overlook everything else that you've been doing. It's a sacrifice of fools. He points out something very particular in this verse, which we're going to move on to in just a moment, that is the sacrifice of fools. And it is talking more than listening. It's coming to the house of God and missing the voice of God because... You're so busy drowning it out with your own agenda. 
You've got the things on your mind that you've come for. You're not here to hear from God. You're not caring about what God says or what God thinks. You're just here to accomplish the things that you want to do so that you can go out and say, all right, that was a good service. I want to remind you tonight that worship is not a mindless exercise to be practiced without thought or sincerity of heart. And you and I can never stop being careful about our worship. Listen, you can't check your brain out. God wants you to make sure that you're sincere and honest in your worship. So he warns us in verse 1, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. You can make serious missteps in your worship. How many young people grow up going to church? And their parents think, well, they're going to church. I mean, that's good, isn't it? It's wonderful. It is good. I'm, I'm glad they're coming to church. But that doesn't guarantee they're right with God. That doesn't guarantee their heart is in it. That doesn't guarantee that that they really are worshipers of God. And actually, what can happen if they don't ever become sincere in their worship is that they can become very, very cold to the things of God. Sometimes they're colder to the things of God than someone who has never stepped foot in a church before. You could talk to a person like that and they would fall under conviction of the gospel, but a young person who's grown up in church and to them it means nothing, you could try to reason with them and they just go, <laughs> ah, that's, that's ridiculous. How does that happen? A lot of missteps in worship. A lot of insincerity in worship and it creates a coldness in the heart. It's not just young people that have to watch out for this. It's older folks and middle-aged folks. We can become cold to God. Now remember, he said the sacrifice of fools is talking more than listening. And that brings us to the second thought that he wants to challenge us about in verses 2 and 3. When we go to the house of God, he says, Be careful what you say. Watch your mouth in the house of God. Now, I don't mean, I don't think you should do it, but I don't, I don't think he means don't swear when you come to the house of God. Don't tell dirty stories when you come to the house of God, although, I, again, I, don't, I think you shouldn't do that. But he's actually talking about something altogether different. In verse 2, he says this very interesting, "...be not rash with thy mouth." And let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Let thy words be few. Something that we learn in this chapter of Ecclesiastes and also in many places in the book of Proverbs is that a fool is always talking and rarely listening. And the Bible warns us that in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. I do a lot of talking when I come to the house of God. I have to be careful about the things that I say. Do you know that one day I'm going to have to give an account to God for the words that I use in this pulpit? That's a heavy responsibility. That's a serious thing. But you know, it's not just the preacher who ought to be careful about his words. You and I contend to be rash in the things that we say in the house of God. 
And what this means is that our statements, the things that come out of our mouth, don't match reality for us. It's this idea of talking one way and living another. Even our religious exercises can become more about us than about the one that we're supposed to be worshiping. For instance, our prayers, which involve words, and tonight is our prayer meeting, so we'll be praying here in a little bit, but our prayers are so often made to be seen of men, to impress someone else. How many times have we been praying in the hearing of someone else and wondering, I wonder what they're thinking about the words that I'm using or the way that I phrase that. I wonder if they think that I know how to pray. Tell me you've never struggled with those thoughts before. So often we're concerned about praying in a way that makes people impressed. Jesus warned us about that, didn't he? He told us that we ought not to pray to be seen of men. That doesn't mean we should never pray publicly. Actually, the Bible is full of examples of public prayer, and we're reminded that public prayer is very important. However, when we pray publicly, we should be very cautious about the motivation of our heart. And we should also be careful about the words that we use. Jesus warned us that even in our prayers, we can be guilty of using vain repetitions, hoping somehow that God will hear us because we're saying the same thing over and over again instead of just talking to God. Be careful. Be careful about your prayers. How about our songs? Our songs can be played or sung to impress others with our technique or the beauty of our voice. We can fall prey to the idea, uh, oh, it's my turn to sing a special. Oh, I hope everybody's going to like my voice. I hope that they'll be wowed with the way that I get that note. Oh, isn't my harmony tight? Isn't that a beautiful technique on the piano and, and uh, whatever other instruments we're playing? Oh, I do such a good job with that. Is that what it's all about? Now, obviously, God wants us to do our best. He wants us to play and to sing with skill, but are we doing it for him or for someone else? They're not words so much, but it's the same problem. Even our messages are preached often to evoke some kind of a positive response. Oh, I hope that they liked what I said. I I hope no one got upset. I hope everyone was happy. I, I, I hope they enjoyed my illustrations. I sure hope they didn't fall asleep. But is that what the message is for? Please don't fall asleep. But is that the way that we measure whether the message was successful? It, do, we, do we measure it by how many people go by at the door and say, great message, I enjoyed that? Is that the measure of success? Our offerings are sometimes given to show others our deep devotion. Look how much I give. Look what I do for God. Hey, listen, look what I do for missions. Look look what I do. Look how much I give. As if God is impressed with this. 
our testimonies, even the things that we share that are going on in our life are sometimes structured to demonstrate to others what great Christians we are. We have to be so careful about this. Now listen, it's important to share testimonies. It's important to encourage others, but we have to question our heart. Why am I saying this? Do I want everybody to know about some need in my life? Am I just... Am I trying to get people to see what a great prayer warrior I am? Because I prayed and God answered and everybody will go, Ooh, look at him, he can really pray. Is that what it's about? You see what I'm saying? We have to be so careful when we come into the house of God that our words be few. Now there's an interesting correlation in verse 3 that he makes. It's a little bit of a, an unusual wording. But most scholars and and Bible commentators believe that verse 3 is talking about this idea when it says, a dream cometh through the multitude of business. It's, It's making a comparison there between the fool's voice being known by multitude of words. And a lot of people say that it seems to be saying when a person has a lot of business, meaning they have travail, they have a lot of cares, think about When you've got a project on your mind and you go to bed, do you sleep well? So this happens to me sometimes on a Saturday night when I just am not settled in my heart about the message. And I'm still, I mean, I've got an outline and I know what I'm going to preach, but it is still, I feel like it's not quite there. I don't quite have it. And I got to get up in front of 300 people on Sunday and make it make sense. And then I go to bed. And what do I dream about all night? Well, it's usually something strange about being in front of the church and the pulpit with some weird thing happening. All right, I don't sleep too good. And then I I wake up in the morning when it's time and I don't feel rested. All right, so a multitude of business dreams, all right? That's like, and this is the point that he's making in verse 3, a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. A fool is someone who is always talking. You can tell a fool just by the fact that they are always talking. They always have to hold the floor in every group. They can't stand for anybody else to be talking. They always have to be the center. Now, does this mean that you and I shouldn't talk in church? Clearly no. Having church involves talking. We've got to communicate. How do we fellowship without talking? How do we sing without talking? How do we pray without talking? How do we preach without talking? How do we do the things that God wants us to do in the house of God without talking? So he's not saying that we should never talk. It just means that we should be really careful what we are saying. We should put it through a grid like, first of all, is it real? Is it real? Don't say it if it isn't real. Is it right? Or am I just saying it because it sounds good? It's so many Christian cliches that get thrown around. What in the world do they even mean? What, what is it that you're trying to communicate? Is it right? Is it, is it the right thing? 
by the way, you can use those cliches if you know what they mean and that's what you're trying to communicate, but sometimes we're just trying to sound like the person next to us and we're not really thinking about what we're saying. Is it real? Is it right? Is it righteous? Is it righteous? You know, there's some things that just don't belong in the house of God. They, they shouldn't be here. Really, they shouldn't be in any part of your life, but they definitely shouldn't be in the house of God. They shouldn't, shouldn't be a part of what we're talking about. Uh, you get in a group with your friends and you start talking about something. Is it righteous? This is the house of God. You know what I'm saying? Young people, do you know what I'm saying? This is God's house. Have respect for him. That's what, that's what the wise man is saying. He's saying, have respect for the house of God. There are things that don't belong in the house of God. Is it real? Is it right? Is it righteous? He uses a fourth word, and it just happens to be an R. Is it rash? Is it rash? We'll talk about that in a minute because the third thing that he says to us is don't make rash promises to God. What are rash promises? Be not rash with thy mouth, he says. And then he goes on to tell us in verse, beginning in verse 4, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Don't make rash promises. Now, when he says in verse 4, when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, I want to ask you a sincere question. Is he telling us not to make promises to God? No, he clearly is not. Because he says, when thou vowest a vow unto God. There is a place and a time to make commitments and promises and assurances to God. It's an important part of our Christian life. It's an important part of what we do at the house of God. When we're confronted with the truth and we're convinced that we're wrong and we come to the place where, where we say, God, I know I need to change and we make an assurance to him and we say, God, I am going to do something different than what I've been doing. We ought to do that. We ought to make commitments to God. But what he is warning about is making rash promises to God. He's warning us in verses 4, 5, and 6 that we should not make a promise and then go back on it. We shouldn't tell God that we're going to do something and then say, never mind, just kidding, I wasn't serious. No, no, it doesn't work that way. When you make a promise to God, it's a very serious thing. Now, why do people make rash promises in the house of God? There's a couple different reasons. Sometimes we get moved emotionally. And while our emotions are an important part of our decision-making process, so if anybody tells you, I make, I make clinical decisions, I am not emotional at all, they're lying. That's untrue. Your emotions are very much a part of your decision-making process. Now, we ought to use reason and logic and thinking, but you can't avoid the fact that your emotions are also a part of your decision-making process. What becomes dangerous is when you're making 
emotional, purely emotional decisions. They don't last. This, this happens sometimes when at camp and young people get tired after they haven't slept enough for a couple of days. And, I, I mean, science will tell you, scientists will tell you, when you are, when you are sleep-deprived, you start to lose control of your frontal lobe, which controls your emotional responses. And at that point, it's very easy to get some kind of an emotional reaction or response. And, oh, okay, looks like something really happened. I always say, we'll see. I'm not trying to be skeptical. But if it's a decision that affected the heart, it won't be something that is at the campfire at camp about what God did and then forgotten by Saturday once you got home. It's going to impact your life much farther into the future. Now, I'm thankful for camp. I'm thankful for what I heard at camp and what God did in my life at camp. I'm thankful for many of you, what God did in your lives at camp. But we've got to be careful that we're not just making emotional decisions. The same thing can happen in a in an emotional meeting where the, the preacher is, is uh, very convincing and, and, and gets people's emotions moving in a certain way and people get caught up in the experience of the moment and they're going to make a decision, they're going to do something and they make some quick assurances to God. Sometimes those assurances of, uh, before God are even shared with other people about I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that the person really has no intention of keeping the promise. Now, why would someone make a promise with no intention of keeping that promise? A lot of times, this is nothing more than image control. We want to be seen by others as being spiritual. We want others to think, I mean, everybody else was moved by the message. I want to look like I was moved by the message. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to say something. We really have no intention of responding or actually carrying through with it. We're just trying, again, and a lot of this passage is surrounding this idea of just wanting to look a certain way in worship. Can I say to you tonight that that is the furthest thing from what true worship is? True worship involves sincerity. You know, there was a couple in the Bible who had this problem. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts got caught up in a very good thing, actually. There were a lot of people in the church who were giving to the work of the Lord and giving to help others who had needs, and they were selling property and bringing big offerings, and Ananias and Sapphira talked about it, and they said, we're going to do that too, Only when they sold the property, they kept back part of the offering. No problem. That would have been fine. They could have just brought what they believed God wanted them to give. The problem came when they tried to lie about it. And the Bible says they lied to the Holy Ghost. They told a lie to the Holy Spirit. And that was a very serious matter indeed. In fact, God judged them severely in front of the congregation. Because God takes our promises seriously. If you make a promise to God, you ought to do your very best to carry it through. The apostle Peter did this too. Jesus warned him. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. 
I'll never do it. I, I could never do such a thing. He was very passionate, very emotional, but the Lord knew better. And he said, oh, you are going to deny me. You absolutely are. And Peter really thought that he was sincere in that promise, but he did deny the Lord, didn't he? And he remembered when, when he heard that cock crow again, and then he caught the eye of Jesus, and he remembered, I didn't keep my promise. We ought to make promises to God and then be faithful to keep those promises. God doesn't take our promises lightly. Verse 6 says, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thy hands? Think about this. This is something that people do all the time. Probably you've done it. Lord... If you deliver me in this situation, if you provide for this need that I have, if you take away this sickness, if you, whatever, fill in the blank, I will serve you for the rest of my days. I I will be faithful in the house of God. I will do this or I will do that. And then God answers your prayer and he gives you what you're looking for. And within a short time, you totally forgot what you promised to God. And you go on your merry way, feel good about it. God blessed me and answered my prayer, except you totally forgot what you told him you were going to do. That's a serious thing. Don't make rash promises to God. Really think about what God wants you to do. We ought to make promises to God, but be faithful to keep those promises. Then he comes to this thought in verse 7. It's the fourth thought that he challenges us with about worship and worshipers. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also divers vanities. So that's just a reiteration of that idea. Be careful what you say. But then he makes this statement in verse 7. But fear thou God. Fear God. This is the fourth admonition. Above all else, Fear God. You know, he's warned us in these seven verses that much in the worship world is nothing more than vanity. Vanity. Listen to me. There's so much vanity in the religious world today. Preachers who get up and preach the Bible and point out what people should do and then go out and are involved in fornication and adultery... That's vanity. So-called Christian musicians who get up on a stage with their instruments and they have their adoring fans that gather around them and they play their songs that are supposed to be about worship to God and then they go and they commit adultery and fornication after the concert with the groupies. Just like it's a secular band. You say, that doesn't happen. It happens all the time. It's absolutely no different than the secular stuff. All kinds of nonsense that is called worship of God. And it's nothing more than vanity. You know what the solution is? Fear God. Fear God. You know, there ought to be a holy sense of reverence and awe when we come to the house of God. We try to teach our children. You know, there's nothing uniquely 
special about this building in and of itself or this auditorium except for the fact that this is the place where we meet together to hear from God. And therefore, this ought to be respected. Now listen, you do what you want with your kids, but I tell my kids, this platform is off limits. Because this is where the word of God is preached. They love coming up here anyway. So whenever they get the chance, when they're clearing the platform, they want to get up here. What is it about that? But this is, again, I'm not telling you you can't ever come up here. I'm just telling you that there, in my mind, there's something special about this place because this is where the scriptures are expounded. Yeah, I get it. This is just a normal building, but this is the place where we meet to worship God. So let's, you know, let's not run around and color on the walls and make a mess and all that sort of stuff. And when that happens, let's clean it up and let's make sure that it's respectful and honorable because this is the place where we come to meet with God. That makes sense to me. But you know what the biggest problem is that we have, that our children have, that all kinds of people have, is that we just don't have a reverence for God. We could come in here and have our rules about how things are supposed to be, but we just don't have an anticipation that when we come here, we're going to meet with God. That when this book is open, we're going to hear from God. That God's going to speak to our hearts and we're going to be moved and we're going to need to make a response. And I've come here to meet with the God of heaven, not just to come to, to, to a social event, to sit around and see who got a new haircut or Who's wearing what outfit or uh, whether somebody's going out to the bathroom two or three times during the services. Who cares? I came to meet with God. Listen, you say it's distracting to me. I see it all. I'm up here preaching. I get it. We're here to meet with God. But in order to do that, we've got to have a fear of God. You say, well, we shouldn't be afraid of God. No, no. We should be afraid of God. I mean, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. How much do we reverence God? Sometimes I fear in our generation, we've become so familiar with the things of God that we no longer have a holy reverence and awe for who He is. Oh, He's a good God and a loving God and a merciful God, but He's also the righteous judge and He is... is, He is holy and his righteousness is blazing and furious and he is going to take vengeance with wrath upon sin. Where is that God? Do we have that comprehension that when we come to the house of God, that's who we're meeting with? Fearing God will cause you to hesitate before you make a promise to him. Fearing God is where real worship starts. I shouldn't have to say this, but we all have to be reminded. Worship is not about you or me in the first place. Worship is about Him. The very first priority ought to be what does He want? What would honor Him? What would lift Him up? So He says, fear God. The thing that will clear up a lot of worship issues is the fear of God. A holy reverence 
For the person of God will bring us into the right place of worship. It'll keep us from making rash promises. It'll cause us to shut our mouth. When you're in in the presence of the holy God, I mean, do you really have a lot to say? We came to hear from him. We want to make sure that we're hearing from him. We want his word to be prominent. So we're going to be careful what we say and we're going to watch our step. Because this is his house. Somebody said to me not too long ago, that's your church. Oh no, this isn't my church. This is not my church. I'm privileged to be a member of this church. I'm privileged to serve as a pastor of this church, but this is not my church. I don't, I, if it was mine, that would be a horrible thing. This is his church. This is is God's church. This is the place where he is to be honored and lifted up. He's the one who ought to be feared. Now, all of this is very heavy, and and it's hard. And you think, well, I don't know if I even want to go to church anymore. That sounds really scary and dangerous. I I don't know if I should go. You should. And thankfully, we can balance this with what we know from the New Testament. Because in Christ... You and I can experience forgiveness and real worship. You know, when we gather to worship, if it was just through our own righteousness or what we could offer, we've got nothing. We'd just crawl out of here and never come back. But because of Christ, because of Christ, we're accepted in the presence of God the Father. Because of Christ, we have an advocate who introduces us to this God who we ought to be in holy awe of. To some degree, it's true that we are all vain in our worship from time to time. And we all know that we sometimes make rash or empty promises to God. Probably every one of us can look back in our life and say, I remember when I told God that and then I didn't do it. That's why we need Christ. Because if it was up to us to keep all of our promises, we would fail miserably. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus reminds us of God's mercy and grace. In Jesus, mercy and truth are met together. In Jesus, we experience forgiveness. And do you know, when you understand Jesus and what he means, it causes you to fear God all the more. To think that the God of heaven who cannot even be approached by mankind because of his holiness and set-apartness, has made a way for us to be accepted in the beloved. It ought to cause us with holy reverence and awe to fall upon our faces before this God and praise him and thank him and give him a complete and full surrender of our lives to do whatever it is that he wants to do. He is worthy of that kind of devotion tonight. In our worship, let us be careful. Now, why was, the, why was the wise man talking about this? I suspect it's because he went to the house of God and he saw a lot of worship that was vain and empty. Let us not be guilty of vain worship. Let our hearts burn with devotion and passion for the God of heaven, for the Lord Jesus Christ who has bought us with his blood. Let it not be said that to us, church, 
the house of God is so many vain repetitions and so many exercises that we go through. But rather, let it be a real reflection of our heart that desires to worship God in sincerity and in truth.